We are in the book of John, chapter 21. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Don't you wish you could take back, take back words that hurt other people, take back actions that have hurt other people, but, but we can't. We can't undo the hurts that we have caused. And so we wait for what we talked about last week, forgiveness. And forgiveness is wonderful and it's sweet and it's, it's really God's grace ministered through us to those who have hurt us. And so Ephesians 5 says, as God in Christ forgave you, in the same manner, forgive one another. But even if you have forgiven someone, there's a change in the relationship, isn't there? I wonder if you've noticed that. Even if you've forgiven, there's a, a change. There's a kind of an awkwardness there. Maybe it used to be that if you met this other person uh, walking on the street, you'd cross the street and you'd you know, maybe hug, you'd talk, you'd tell jokes, you'd catch up, you'd feel like it was, oh, you just had to do that because this was someone that was so close to you. But, but now when you pass one another on the street, you, you nod hello, you might smile, but there's a sadness because the relationship is not back where it was. You're not restored yet. Forgiveness is, of course, hard and costly. And, and the proof of that, if you want to know, is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it costs God to forgive us. And of course, in some smaller measure, it costs us to forgive one another. But forgiveness needs to blossom into reconciliation and restoration. The relationship with the offender needs to be restored, or else we leave the person who has offended us broken, and in fact, in spiritual jeopardy. So we have a ministry to do to those even that we have forgiven, the ministry of reconciliation. And so I'd like to look at this passage in John's Gospel, chapter 21, and just think of these three words, reconciled, restored, 
and renewed. And I invite you to think of people that have hurt you, that have betrayed you, that have taken things that are precious from you. And think about these three words, reconciled, restored, and renewed. Of course, we begin with reconciled. We, we have to reconcile those who have hurt us, and we talked about this some last time. The disciples here uh, are on the shore with Jesus. You remember what had happened before the crucifixion? All of the disciples had run away. They had fled in fear. I, I can only imagine, maybe you could imagine, the fear, uh, I'm sorry, the shame rather that they felt now, the, the remorse that they felt now, what they had done. But maybe Peter felt it the worst. The last thing, the last thing that Jesus heard from the lips of this close friend named Peter was while Jesus was being beat and abused, was to hear Peter swear loudly and say, I don't know him. Get out of my face. Imagine what that did to Peter. Imagine if the last thing your dear friend heard, because you'd had a fight with him, because you were angry, the last thing he heard was something like that, and then he died. Luke's Gospel says that after saying that, Peter went out and wept bitterly. There's no way to take it back, no way to explain, no way to say, no, no, I didn't really mean it. But of course, we know, and I'm going through this story very quickly because you know how it ends, with surprise and with joy, because Jesus rose from the dead. And he rose with news of forgiveness. In Luke chapter 24, here is how it's put. And actually, it's on that same Easter day, the day of the resurrection. Jesus came to all of the disciples and it says, this is what the scriptures said. He said that the Messiah would die and rise again and that repentance for forgiveness would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Of course, that's the gospel. But imagine how sweet that sounded to these disciples and to Peter. Forgiveness, forgiveness. There's hope for us yet. So forgiveness is offered in Jesus' name, but you know, sinners like us Sinners like Peter and the disciples have to taste that forgiveness. I don't know, it's human nature. It has to be served to us. It has to be maybe better applied to us personally. You, you know, forgiveness can be a legal issue. All right, you owe me the debt, I forgive you. All right, you betrayed me, you hurt me, I forgive you now, leave me alone. It can be like that. Often it is, isn't it? Forgiveness is sort of a, a legal act. The Bible tells me to do it, so I've done it, now leave me alone. But the relationship can remain well, awkward and cold and fractured. And there's only one who can fix that. Because the wronged one, the, the one who offended rather, is the one who remains broken in that. The one who hurt you remains broken, even though that kind of forgiveness has been Offered, And I wonder if Peter felt like that. There's something interesting. You may have noticed this, that as you read the Gospels and you look at all the events that happened after the crucifixion of Jesus and after the resurrection of Jesus, you look at all those accounts, in none of them is there any mention of this Peter who's usually just talkative, impetuous. There's no mention of him ever saying a single He's quiet. I don't know why that is, but I wonder if it's 
because he was just uncomfortable. Jesus appeared to them. We know that. It says here that he had appeared a few times even before this. But maybe he just couldn't look Jesus full in the face. What was Jesus thinking of me? I haven't had that conversation. I haven't had that grace applied to me personally yet. More was needed. Forgiveness had to be applied so that there could be a real reconciliation. Now, now here's the question as we think about that. Think about this. How do we know when we've reconciled? It's a process. You know, things don't go sort of snap back into normal again right away. How do we know when we've reconciled? Well, here's one very practical way, if you'll receive it, one very practical way to know that you've reconciled. Food. Sharing a meal. Am I reconciled? Ask yourself this. Would I share a meal with this person? Would I invite this person to come to my home and in peace and friendship sit with my family around the table with this person? Am I reconciled? A shared, a shared meal is really a picture of peace. And it's true all through the scriptures. Actually, you can see examples of it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We maybe uh, you know, think of fast food. We just think of, I need calories. You know, I need energy. But a meal is really a place where friendship is celebrated. So at the feast in the Old Testament, it says they ate and drank in the presence of God. I read from Exodus 24 earlier. Imagine that. In the, in the presence of a holy God without fear, with a promise of peace, they go and they share a meal at the table of the Lord. And there's so many examples. In the New Testament, uh, you remember the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son finally returns home, what does the father do? Well, it, he, he slaughters a calf and they have a huge feast because the family is back again. There's a reconciliation. I'm so happy you're with us, son. Come, eat with us. Uh, I don't know if you have children who are estranged from you or they're estranged from the Lord. I, I hope, hope they come back to you. I hope they come back to the Lord. And I, I hope you have a wonderful feast when that happens. A, a, a happy, festive event. That's what happened with the prodigal son. Food is important. Food is important. And here, that's what's happening. Jesus invites them to share in a meal. It was read for you in verses 9 through 13. I'll just read it. They're fishing. They see Jesus on the shore. Verse 9, so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus was cooking. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew and threw the net to the lounge, the net to the land, full of large fish, 153, although they were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Jesus knew exactly what Peter and the others needed, reconciliation, a, a personal declaration that there was peace. All is well. And it's communicated with this invitation, come and eat. All of you, yes, Peter, even you, come, eat. I prepared the food. And that leads to 
restoration. So if that's reconciliation, and then there's a restoration of this relationship. We get the impression that Peter and the boys uh, were completely convinced that there was no possibility of them ever returning to the call that God had on their lives before. To be his disciples, to be, well, his apostles, those who would carry the message of the kingdom out into the world. They had failed. They had utterly failed. So after the resurrection, uh, Peter announces to the boys, it's in, uh, I'm calling them boys because that's the word he uses, it's in John's gospel, the same one, chapter 21 at the beginning, he, he says to them, guys, I'm going fishing. That's what it says literally. And they said, well, we're going with you. So they, they said, you know, we're going, going back to our old career. There's no point in hoping that Jesus will ever, ever take us back. We've utterly failed him. Let's go back to the old jobs. Now, the truth is they had all run, right? Peter maybe had done was worse actually denying Jesus openly. But why would Jesus ever entrust to them the message of his kingdom again? And so they went back to their old jobs. Forgiven, but in their minds branded as failures. You see, broken. And who can ever heal this kind of brokenness? Now, here's the answer to that. The only one who can heal that kind of brokenness is the one who's been offended. The only one who can reconcile and restore is the one who's been offended. That might be you. Think about the people who've offended you. I, I know in your mind you've forgiven them and there's certain rules for forgiveness. You've followed them carefully and to the last jot and tittle. But the only one that can heal this brokenness of an unrestored person is the one who's been offended and that might be you. Because you might have been hurt by this person, made angry, betrayed, gossiped against, slandered, you suffered pain and loss, but you are also the one who has the power to heal this brokenness. And you have to ask yourself, what will I do? Will I reconcile and restore? Will I embrace her again? Or will I let her suffer as I know she deserves? Oh, for after what he did to me, I know he deserves this. Why should I care? But here's the thing. If we don't restore, if we don't reconcile, if we don't offer this warm love, then we actually endanger the other person. We actually endanger the brother or sister who has in the past offended us. Can I give you some examples of that? Actually, from one passage in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. You remember in Corinth that there was this man who had committed this heinous sin, and it had really brought shame to the whole church. And seems to have really brought shame personally to Paul himself. When he committed this, he was isolated from the whole church because he wouldn't change. He says, no, I'm going to do this. Well, as it happened, he did repent. He did change his mind. And, and now Paul warns the church of the danger this offender faces unless they restore him. It's in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, here's verse 7 and 8. He says, you should rather turn to and forgive and comfort him. Listen to this. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Show him your love, Paul is saying. Or you'll make him despair. You'll break him with the weight of the sorrow that he feels. 
It's in the hands of the offended one to restore and heal the one who's broken. And it's even more than that. There's a hint in this same passage that the evil one lurks around such brokenness just like an enemy might lurk around a castle with broken walls, looking for the best place to enter in. Defenses are down, walls are broken, I'm going to enter in, but let me figure out the best place. So it goes on, and in verse 11, he says this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Forgive, restore, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. There's a power to heal this brokenness, and it comes from restoration, and it's the one who's offended who has that power to heal. Now, of course, Jesus, who had been betrayed and abandoned by his disciples, knew all this, and so he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, let's go for a walk. That's at least how I read it because later on in verse 20, it seems that the young apostle John was following along with them. So it seems that Peter and Jesus were having a personal conversation. In this conversation, there are words, and some people spend a lot of time with these synonyms. There's synonyms for the word love, there's synonyms for the word know, and synonyms for the word tend or feed. And I'm not actually going to spend any time on that. Uh, I, I think, and this is not the place to defend this, but I think we can place too much on those distinctions. Instead, let me just focus on two things that are very obvious. The first is the word love. Do you love me? That's the heart of this conversation, isn't it? Do you love me? To this broken man, Peter, now filled with shame at the betrayal of this friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says, this is the question that matters. This is what I want to know. Not excuses, not rationalization, not the fear that I know you must have felt. I just want to hear, do you love me? Do you love me more than these, Peter asked. Remember, Peter had boasted before the crucifixion he said, even if everyone else abandons you, I will be with you. I will stay loyal. And so probably that's what it means here. Do you love me more than these other disciples? Is it true, Peter? And three times he's asked this question. Three times Peter is heartbroken. Maybe tearfully he says to Jesus, but Lord Jesus, I do love you. I do love you. I don't have any excuses for what I've done. I feel shame, I feel sorrow for what happened, but I know I love you. J.C. Ryle was a uh, pastor, a Bible commentator, uh, late 19th century, and uh, here's what he said. He said, this is the mark of the Christian. This is how you know you belong to Jesus. This is how you know you're saved, how you're a Christian. Let me read what he said. Ask him, ask a Christian whether he's converted, whether he's a believer, whether he's a child of God. And he may perhaps reply that he really does not know. But ask him whether he loves Christ. And he will reply, I do. Wherever there is true grace, there will be a consciousness of love towards Christ. And that's a good word for us, isn't it? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? That's at the very heart 
of our relationship, of our Christian walk. So the first thing that I want you to notice about this text is the word love. Do you love me? And then the second thing, which is repeated three times, is tend my sheep or feed my sheep. Also repeated three times. Now you, you notice this is a word of restoration. Here's the ones, his sheep, that are the most precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and me, his church. It's the, the sheep that he bought with his own blood, with his own death. And now he's entrusting them to his apostles. He's entrusting them to Peter. And he's looking at this betrayer, this denier, and he entrusts Peter with the work of tending to his people. There's a restoration. And then lastly, there's a renewal. There's a reconciliation and the forgiveness. There's a restoration of, of this relationship and of love and of, of trust. And then there's a renewal. Jesus renews Peter's calling. He renews the relationship again. You see, Peter at this point must have felt defined by that one great tragic event in his past. That, oh, maybe you feel this way, this dark sin that you don't even want to talk about anyway, anymore. The betrayal of the Son of God. The betrayal of his dear friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. He thought that forever when people talked about him, this is what they would talk about. This is what they would remember. Oh, Peter. Peter the betrayer. Is that what you're talking about? I wonder if you feel that way. I, I know there's a lot of people who feel that forever they're defined by the failures of the past, by the way they've gone against the will of God, by the way they've dishonored the Lord, by the way they've wounded their Savior. That's who I am. I haven't done what the Lord called me to do. And that's what defines me. But you notice that Jesus renews the call. We read from John chapter 21. Let me just read again verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. First, that last phrase, follow me. Didn't those words remind Peter of that first thing that he had heard from the Lord Jesus Christ? The very beginning of his walk when he heard Jesus say, follow me. And now he hears exactly the same words again. You're back in line, Peter. Get behind me again. Start going where I'm going. Exactly where you were in, my, in your relationship with me is where you are now. So Jesus is pointing Peter, well, away from his failures in the past, and in fact, away from his past, just as he points us away from our past, and he's saying, there's a future, Peter. There's a future to following me, serving me, and doing what I call you to do. You're not defined by your failures in the past, but you're defined by what you will do for me in the future. Follow me. And then it's made dramatic. Verse 18. What is this talking about? Well, it's talking about martyrdom. Peter, you're going to give your life one day as a testimony to your love for me. I know that's scary for us, but I, I think this was gratifying for Peter to hear. Who wouldn't want a redo? 
I betrayed you, Lord. When my life was in danger, I chose to protect myself rather than testify to your love. And Jesus says, yes, but one day, one day, as you follow me, you're going to have a chance to say yes. Instead of betraying me to save your own life, you'll testify to me by giving your life. Martyrdom. You will glorify me by giving your life for me. There's a renewal of the relationship. He turns the eyes of Peter from the past to the future. He says, you follow me and I'm going to take you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to glorify me. So here's a renewal of love, renewal of friendship, and a renewal of, well, usefulness, of ministry, of following the Lord Jesus Christ. So that question this text then raises for all of us who are called to forgive as God and Christ has forgiven us is what would it take for me and for you to forgive someone who has hurt us deeply? I know that forgiveness is hard and it's costly and it's painful and we talked about that last time. But then the question is, what would it take to invite them to your home? What would it take for you to have a meal around your table with your family in peace and in friendship and in happiness. You see, that would be a blossoming of forgiveness. Now, it's a, it's a hard issue, I know. There's all kinds of complexities and all kinds of questions, and I hope we can talk about this some on Wednesday night. But I, I want to read for you an account of this kind of reconciliation between two people that you would never expect this to happen, even if there was no personal injury. It's between an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian living in the West Bank, a Muslim family. You know there's so many tensions that divide these two groups. You know, their history, and yes, their faith. The economic disparities which are immense between the two. And then all of them have this grief and sorrow and anger because loved ones have been bombed and killed because of the conflict between the two sides. I, I, I can't help but think that we see the same kinds of divisions in our national dialogue these days. People who are absolutely sure they are right, so sure that they can't even hear the other side anymore. The lines are drawn and they're hard and fast. That's the way it is between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And this Israeli was named Zamir. He was driving in the West Bank uh, in Palestinian territory. It was a dark night, and as he drove, a young boy darted in front of the car. He slammed on his brakes, but then he heard this thud, and the boy went down. Oh, he was, you can imagine, upset, heartbroken, Fearful, the boy went to the hospital, but tragically, after a few days, he died there. He was only 13 years of age. The issue was taken to court, and Zamir was found to be innocent. There was no guilt. He, there was nothing he could do. Now, he could have left it at that, of course. There was no obligation for him to do anything for the family of this little boy. No obligation to do anything, but 
this Zamir happened to be a believer in Jesus as his Messiah, a Christian. And I believe it was the spirit of Christ in him that compelled him to seek peace with his family. It's not enough that I've been declared innocent. That's forgiveness if you want to call it that. But he wanted to have peace with his family. It was a long process. It was a hard process. He contacted a, a pastor in, the, in that area of Palestine and the pastor contacted some leaders in the Muslim community and they talked and negotiated. It took a, went on and on. You know, uh, reconciling is a long process. It's a hard process. If you are called by the Spirit of Christ to do this with people that have hurt you, it's not going to be easy. In Romans 12, it says, as much as lies with you, be at peace with everybody. It's talking about somebody who has a longing, who prays for this peace to happen, but knows that it may not happen. It may not happen in your lifetime. But if I can do it, and whatever I can do, I will do to make this happen. It's my prayer. And that was Zamir's longing and prayer. All through this process, he was praying for this kind of peace. And finally his prayer was answered and he met in the home of this Arab family. And he describes how awkward it was, you can imagine. He describes how the father of this little boy uh, left the room several times because he couldn't contain his grief and he didn't want to cry in front of other people. And then he would return after each time. He says, the cups of coffee remained on the table untouched. According to the traditions, the father would be the first to taste from the cup as a sign that he accepted the reconciliation. This is Zamir. The lines of grief in the father's face softened. He looked at me squarely and his smile broadened as he moved toward me, opening his arms in a gesture of embrace. Everyone began to shake hands with one another as the father sipped the coffee. Then one of the young men of the family said to Zamir, Know, my brother, that you are in place of this son who has died. You have a family and a home somewhere else, but know that here is your second home. Here is your second home. Come, enjoy a meal with us whenever. Reconciliation, restoration, peace. It's healing for all the broken souls. Not just the legal matter of forgiveness, not just the matter of putting aside the debt, but then allowing that to blossom into restoration and reconciliation. When you're hurt, when you're slandered, betrayed, despised, we may not realize that we have this tremendous power given to us, which is the power to heal and restore those who are broken. We have the power to long for and pray for the day when, well, they can sit around the table with us, laugh, enjoy conversation, have a happy time with our family in our own home. That's the goal. And friends, a picture of that is the communion, the communion table that we'll be joining the Lord at today. Christ is inviting us to his table. We know he's forgiven us. You've heard that a hundred times. We sing about it. But you know, it needs to be applied to each of our hearts personally. You might say, it has to be tasted by us. 
I think this is a very physical, tangible way in which our Lord Jesus Christ allows us to personally taste the message of his mercy, grace, and reconciliation. He's saying, I want to restore you. I want to, be, to, to renew you. I want to give you a future. And he says, come and eat. Revelations chapter 3, verse 20, is addressed to the Laodicean church. A church filled with pride and arrogance, self-importance, ignorant and blind but not knowing it. In fact, Jesus says in that section of Revelations 3 that he would like to spit them out of his mouth. But then he asks them to repent. He asks them to taste his love. And he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I will dine with him and he with me. It's Jesus inviting us to share his table in peace and friendship. So come, come and eat. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we Thank you for this invitation that sits here before us, Lord. It's the invitation to share a meal with you, God Most High. God that we've offended, God that we continue to offend. And yet, Lord, you invite us to be your friends. You invite us to be at peace with you. And you tell us, even through these elements, that you've Paid the price for that priest. We thank you for that, Lord, and we, we pray for ourselves. We, we pray, Lord, that we could that Lord, we could share the same mercy and same grace in some small measure with all those that have offended us. Bring those to mind now, Lord. Those that we don't really even want to think about. Those that we have done the legal duty of forgiving. But now, Lord, put in us a longing and a prayer to restore friendship and love and peace. In your holy name we pray it. Amen. Amen. We're going to partake in communion in just a moment. Uh, <clears throat> we have little cups that have two tabs, one for the bread, the wafer, and one for the juice. But is there anyone who does not have one? I'm, anyone else? Okay. I invite you to this table, to all who are weary, all who are forsaken, all who know that they've failed the Lord, as the disciples did, but all who know that the Savior is inviting them to come to Him. And I want to invite you with the words of this chorus that we have uh, sung in the past, God and man at table are sat down. Who is this who spreads the victory feast? Who is this who makes our warring cease? Jesus, risen Savior, Prince of Peace, God and man at table are sat down. Beggars, lame, and harlots also here. Repentant publicans are drawing near. Wayward sons come home without a fear. God and man at table are sat down.